Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're looking at the economic dividing lines between the two main parties in British politics. What should Labour do if the Tories are starting to do what Labour might do? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. To discuss this, we have, I'm delighted to say, Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke. So we're about a week out, roughly, from the budget. The Tories, in some polls, are currently 13, 14 points ahead of Labour. There's been a lot of discussion about whether Rishi Sunak has carved out a new kind of position for the Conservative Party. Helen, I'm going to ask you, I don't know if it's possible to do this in a couple of minutes, and not to summarise the budget. But given what we learned over the past week, is there a discernible either political or economic strategy, do you think, in what Rishi Sunak has said and done, particularly given traditionally in British politics, this is an occasion to establish dividing lines between the parties or alternatively to steal the opposition's clothes. Can you identify where the strategy is here? Well, I think that you can think about this in like two different ways. The first of them is if you look at it in economic policy terms, it looks like fairly straightforwardly an attempt to concentrate on the in the short term on economic recovery and to try to deal with the problem of ending the support that's been established during the pandemic in a reasonably, though not entirely, gradualist fashion so that when things open up in the in the summer, or at least assuming that they do open up in the summer, that there isn't a kind of complete contraction of that support. But at the same time, to say that in the medium term, in a couple of years' time, that there has to be an emphasis on paying for the pandemic on bringing the level um, of debt, at least as a proportion of GDP, back down. And I think if you think about it, it's a kind of odd way of thinking about the electoral cycle. I mean, it's produced, obviously, by the situation that we're in, because usually in old style British politics, where budgets and the electoral cycle were concerned, that you you do the, the painful things earlier on, and you trying to get into the growth mode as high growth as possible as near as near as possible to the election so in that sense it's like it is I think not something that we would be used to um, seeing but I think if we look at the the political position underneath it it seems to be that Rashi Sinat thinks that the Conservatives have to go into the next election being able to claim that they're the party that's serious about the economy and he's treating being serious about the economy as being at least relatively cautious about debt. And it looks like he wants to be able to say, look, we are the responsible ones and Labour's going to go back to being irresponsible about debt, just like it's been in the past in that conservative narrative. And then at the same time, the Labour position seems to be is, is that the short-term position of the, of the Conservatives is an illusion, that that's not what the true Conservative Party is. And that by the time we get back to the next election, the old Conservative Party will assert itself being uh, meaner and less interested in welfare and spending um, money. So it, 
looks to me in some sense that both of the parties are a little bit lost in the economic conditions in which they you know, find themselves and kind of hoping that the past is going to come back. But I'm not really sure that it that it is. And they're going to have to adjust to the new economic situation in which we're in and the political ramifications of that. Because Chris, that, that I was struck by the way in which this sort of pushes against what you might expect within the electoral cycle. And Labour seemed to get themselves into a bit of a tangle, particularly around corporation tax, for instance. So what Sunak has done is basically said he's going to delay it, but at some point those taxes have to rise and it's going to be much later in the electoral cycle. And Labour, Keir Starmer in particular, seemed to get himself caught up in the assumption that the Tories wouldn't do that and to start to make a kind of Keynesian argument or post-Keynesian argument that economic policy should be counter-cyclical in economic terms and so that the corporation tax rises should be delayed. And then the Tories did that which in maybe the medium term looks as though it doesn't quite fit with their electoral interests. But in the short term, it did have the effect of discombobulating the Labour Party. Unless I've misunderstood what happened. I, I, I think that's roughly right, that the the instincts of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer and Annalisa Dodds are straightforwardly Keynesian, that you don't want to be raising taxes when you're trying to stimulate the economy. On the other hand, we're in a funny position with corporation tax because it was George Osborne that cut it quite severely a while ago in the hope that that would generate funds that never really appeared. So this is the Conservatives retreating from uh, something they tried earlier that didn't really come off. And as you say, it's created this this funny position where it looks as if Labour is defending lower taxes on business and they're getting criticism both from the Labour left and from the Tories as to what they're doing. I think Part of this is a, I mean, it is a problem of different timelines, different timescales, that it doesn't really matter what Labour does now. Above all, they don't want to give hostages to fortune. They don't want to say things that the Conservatives can can, can beat them with later. Dodds and Starmer are, are thinking about what the Labour platform will look like for an election expected in 2024. And so dealing with the present is is just very difficult. And What compounds the political problem for Labour is that Keir Starmer laid a heavy bet on his competence narrative that he wouldn't attack Boris Johnson's government so much on values, on kleptocracy, on corruption, on, um, you know, whatever. He'd focus on questions of competence. And that worked well in the disastrous circumstances of the government response to the pandemic for much of 2020. It was a bet for the future because the thought was that Brexit would bring ever more chaos in the new year and economic difficulties would become acute. But right now, things are slightly different, that the pandemic has gone on for longer than people expected in last spring when the competence strategy was first tried out. The vaccine rollout is going very well. It's not a great deal to do with central government. It's much more to do with the NHS that is very good at doing this kind of thing where you administer the same simple procedure over and over and over again. And the way that the pandemic has continued means that the furlough scheme has inevitably been continued, which means that a lot of people are protected from the economic impacts that would otherwise be going on. And because of the government's ability to agree a Brexit deal late last year, the problems are local in places like Northern Ireland, uh, which doesn't matter a great deal in electoral politics in Britain, in the bit that will determine the identity of the next government, and in 
particular sectors like the, you know, the, the the shellfish sector in particular is, is is having great difficulties at the moment but these are relatively small stories in the grand scheme of things where the big drama is the pandemic and the government's response to the pandemic and the vaccine rollout and so the incompetence charges don't stick as well as they used to and in that context people are viewing Starmer very suspiciously and wondering whether he's got lots of things wrong and doesn't have the political instincts that people thought he had last year, and so on and so on and so on. So Helen, given that backdrop, can I ask you a question? I'm not sure if this is a question about economics or about history. But you said that that both parties are maybe thinking that the current conversion, uh, they're not quite sure what to do because they're quite close to each other on some questions and they sort of find themselves awkwardly placed on the other side where they might expect to be divided more conventionally. But that as we move through this parliament towards an election, the differences will be laid out more clearly. The, the claim will be that what the Tories have done is slightly an illusion and that Tories will want to say that Labour's sort of air of responsibility is also an illusion. But there are periods in British modern British political history, recent history, where the two parties do converge. And does it have anything to do with the fact that we are now, and we have been for a while, back in a very much a two-party system? The other parties have fallen away. And when, this is sort of conventional democratic theory, when it is a straightforward contest between two broad church parties, they do tend to have to converge. That's one of the dynamics of electoral politics. And that therefore this coming together might not be an illusion. It might be more like the British politics of, say, the 50s or the 60s. Or do you think that's, that's too much of a stretch? I mean, that case has been made. One or two people have, have wanted to say that Rishi Sunak reminds them of a politician of the 50s or 60s, a Tory politician of that era in that mix of state intervention and a certain air of fiscal responsibility. Yeah, I should be clear. I don't actually think their coming together is an illusion. I think that they both have got an interest in trying to construct it into being an illusion so that they can attack the other right. party. I think that we've got to separate this out into two different things, one of which I think does play out in relation to what happens when you have a predominantly two-party system and obviously that always has to be qualified by the situation in Scotland and the other side of which doesn't really have anything to do with British politics has to do with much wider change in the world economy and geopolitically. So I would say on the first it's Brexit that's produced um, some convergence because essentially Labour has decided that it's not going to become the party of trying to return Britain to the European Union so that issue, not in relation to Northern Ireland, quite the contrary in relation to Northern Ireland, but otherwise is settled between the two political parties. And that is an area where you can clearly say one party, the Conservative Party, or part of the Conservative Party, pushed out in a, in a different direction. That direction ended up being politically winning and that Labour has moved into that position. So you might then draw a parallel with the radical moves in a different way that the post-war, the Attlee government made. And then the Conservatives accepting things like the National Health Service, the mixed economy, etc. But I think that the other side of the, the changes aren't really anything to do with Britain as such or British politics as such. They're to do with changes that we can see pretty much around the world, certainly in, in North America and Europe. And they come from the fact that financial market conditions and monetary conditions mean that it's possible to sustain huge levels of debt, though there is always the question about whether the bond markets are, are, are going to um, to blow up. 
Then there's the fact that basically everybody in Europe and North America and other parts of the world to some extent here too have responded to China's industrial strategy post-2015 by saying we need some kind of industrial strategy ourselves. And then that there's this move that we can see of taking green energy much more um, seriously. And so the, and the Conservatives have themselves gone in this direction. So indeed, it was I think it was Theresa May's government that was the first of the large economies states in the world to, to say we're going carbon neutral by 2050. So in some sense, Labour fought the last election on this being its territory, but that was already, I think, a kind of illusion it was trying to create, although the way it gone about it would have been radically different. So there are just a big structural changes that are going on that leave the Conservatives and Labour really quite close to each other on some central economic questions. Just on that question of debt, I've got a question for Chris in a second, but on that question of debt, that as it were, there's a ubiquitous phenomenon that it seems to be relatively easy to sustain these levels of debt. So we've got Sunak wanting to position himself as the person who is willing to sustain those levels of debt while it makes economic sense to do so while we're recovering, so as not to choke off the recovery. But past that point, wants to return to a narrative that says this isn't sustainable. And there are some indications that Johnson's a little bit closer to the view that it is sustainable in the longer run. Is that a real, do you think, potentially point of division within the Conservative Party? Yeah, I think it is, but I think that it's in part political in this sense, in that I'm not sure that Sunak, from what I can sort of perceive anyway, has got a clear economic analysis of why it isn't sustainable. It seems to me that he wants a dividing line with the with the Labour Party about it, that he doesn't quite understand what the Conservative Party is going to be for if it's not fiscally cautious. I think the, the difficulty with his position in an economic sense is that even though you can make quite you know decent arguments as to why this level of debt can't in the long term be sustainable, then nobody's got any idea any longer what the long term or even the medium term is where these matters are concerned and and the chances are and we saw this back in March that if there's going to be huge problems in the bond markets for governments to borrow they're going to affect everybody including as we saw back in March the American government so in this sense if it's going to be a collective problem because there's so much debt through the entire economy then what any individual country does in terms of trying to retrench that debt is really neither here nor there and I think you can see this as a problem that really afflicted Germany that was the one large country state that really went down the road of debt retrenchment after 2008 and then found that it didn't really make any difference when things came along in March 2020. Now, you could say, well, it had more fiscal latitude than Italy, certainly um, the case, but the Germans have had to move away from the position and the the constitutional break that they had on budget um, deficits, and it's not so clear it's going back again after the pandemic. So even if Sunak's right in a general sense about everybody's debt in the long term being unsustainable. That's, I think, in some sense, neither here nor there, where any individual's country's politics is in the present. That's so interesting. It's so hard to wrap one's head around the thought that it doesn't matter what you do on the biggest political questions. Chris, so if there is this convergence around things like the the capacity, maybe in the short to medium term, of governments to spend, there's a move by democratic governments towards industrial strategy, there's a growing convergence that at least something needs to be done in the environmental space, whether it's a Green New Deal or some other kind of driving of environmental and technological innovation. If you were 
the Labour Party. Which one would you pick on as the best bet to try to show that the Tories were faking it? On the assumption there's always going to be the possibility of reviving the competence agenda. And so it might be in that space too, that they're not competent to do some of these things. But in straightforward, what used to be called issue-based terms, would it be that that they don't know how to do an industrial strategy, they don't mean it about the environment, that they say that they're willing to spend, but actually they're not willing to spend in the way that we would? Which one would you pick? Or maybe do all of them? I think the answer has to be that Labour should do a bit of everything. But I think I think two things. One is that the politics for them are very difficult. The narrative that uh, the last Labour government was fiscally irresponsible, that borrowing is reckless, that Labour can be expected to run up bigger debts than the Conservatives and not be able to pay them off. That narrative took hold of British politics over 10 years ago now. And judging by the way the press covers economics doesn't seem to have let go. Uh, We regularly have TV journalists uh, making the analogy of debt to the national credit card, analogizing the the state to households. These analogies that however many times economists explain that they're misleading still are the bread and butter of the journalists who cover the finances and public expenditure. And That means that the Conservatives always have this sort of moral high ground they can claim of being the fiscally responsible party and slam Labour whenever they seem to be advocating anything that would require borrowing more, even as the Conservatives in practice are retreating quite a long way away from that position and through the Towns Fund and the Leveling Up Fund and the fantasies of large-scale infrastructure projects and so on, uh, the government is indicating that it's quite happy to spend uh, to the extent that that can help secure political objectives of one kind or another. The other thought I have is that it it seems to me that one dividing line between the two parties is that a return to significant economic growth is more important for the Labour Party than for the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party electoral coalition in large part is made up of homeowners, of of pensioners, of uh, the homeowning middle classes, in particular of landlords. And while the government is maintaining the conditions that keep property prices very high and rents very high and can defend the the triple lock on the pension. That's what they need to do to keep their coalition basically intact. And they can do that regardless of how much the wider economy is suffering or the wider population is struggling. Labour, by contrast, it's much more politically imperative for them to have a clear pathway back to sustained economic growth, that obviously sets up tensions with their environmental agenda to the extent that growth tends not to be especially good for the environment. But everything that a Labour government might want to do becomes easier to the extent that the economy is growing and tax revenue is rising and it's easier to settle more generous public sector pay claims and so on in that kind of environment. So while not really disagreeing with anything Helen said about the areas of convergence between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, there are aspects of that going on. I do think the the politics they face are very difficult. And I think Labour will be looking to do whatever it takes to persuade people that they have a plausible growth strategy, because that's the necessary condition for a Labour government being able to flourish. I think that the the big risk for the Conservatives is the unemployment question because at a certain point, however it's 
staggered. There's going to be an end to the the support that's been provided via the furlough scheme in particular during the pandemic, and that is going to let loose higher unemployment into the economy. I think it's too difficult to judge at the moment how much, and you get the impression that, that Boris Johnson has got a you know, relatively optimistic take on that, but I think that we might put that down more to his sort of gung-ho optimism style than any clear objective judgment about the the matter. And I think that for all the ways in which I would say that our politics is in a really quite different place that makes certain things in terms of comparisons with the past quite difficult, I don't think that the politics of relatively high unemployment is going to be any better for an incumbent government than it's ever been before. And I think that British politics hasn't really experienced this since the since the 1980s. Now, obviously, then that it was possible for incumbent government to get re-elected several times with unemployment over three million, which was then a very high figure. So simply saying that the Conservatives are going to have to deal with rising unemployment, I don't think necessarily means that that's a path back for Labour into office. But I still think it's a pretty tricky political situation for the Conservatives and one that will give Labour some opportunities. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The other area where Labour clearly has spot an opportunity is pay rise for public sector workers, but particularly for NHS workers, the 1% figure. Uh, there's been an attempt to make that the kind of standout figure, not from the budget, but from this brief period of political decision making. Are there risks there, Chris, do you think? Because Labour does need to broaden its coalition in some respects if it's going to get back, and we'll come on to Scotland in a second. To, you know, the argument is, on the government side, that though 1% is clearly not a generous offer, relatively speaking, public sector workers, though those in the NHS have clearly had a hellish time, have been in economic terms, in job security terms, better protected during this period than those working in the private sector who are more vulnerable, including loomingly more vulnerable to unemployment. Can Labour really try and expand its coalition by focusing on defending the interests of public sector workers, do you think? Or does it need to have a a political strategy that goes beyond that? I think in in general terms, you're right that if Labour goes all in for saying it's going to make uh, conditions better for public sector workers and reverse the stagnating pay of of the last um, decade or so, it is going to run into all those difficulties. And that's why I don't really think Labour is going to do that. Uh, But the nurses issue does give it a free hit that nurses are not especially well paid. They have been absolutely heroic over the last 12 months. I assume this was a political miscalculation by government that they thought that at a time when pay is generally frozen, any kind of rise would be interpreted positively. And they miscalculated that a 1% rise would not be seen as, as generous. 
And so I think they've got themselves in a mess and they will be looking to extricate themselves from the mess. And if that means at some point a quiet U-turn to give nurses a higher pay rise, they will do that because it's not super expensive for them in the grand scheme of things. And it will be difficult to give that argument legs and argue that the nurses are the thin end of the wedge. And if you give them a pay rise, you have to give everyone else a pay rise too. I think given what's happened over the last year, the idea that the NHS is special is not a difficult case to make. But yeah, the, the, the broader problem is, is a real one for Labour, which is that it needs to expand its electoral coalition if it's going to win elections, that it's obviously not pursuing the Corbyn strategy of appealing very much to young voters, first-time voters, people who don't vote, students, people in, in large cities. It's looking elsewhere for votes. And the margins are going to be very fine. It's going to be very difficult to expand the the electoral coalition. That's one reason why the unemployment issues that Helen flags are quite so important, that if the return of mass unemployment changes the attitude of ordinary voters, floating voters, people who are in the middle, people who used to vote Labour but switched to the Conservatives over the last ele- election or two, if that's what it takes for them to go back to Labour, that's a way for Labour to grow its electoral support that doesn't require it to take uh, potentially unpopular positions about um, public sector pay that, as you say, may incur jealousy or resentment from other parts of the electorate. So I feel a kind of warm glow of nostalgia in raising the next issue because we used to talk about this quite a lot and tie ourselves up in knots. Um, And maybe we're about to do that again, or I am anyway. But the government is in the process of repealing the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which would have required an election to take place five years after the previous one, so not till the end of 2024. And the government wants to re-establish the previous convention, which was it was at the Prime Minister's discretion to call an election. And that was always thought to be an advantage to the incumbent government because it does allow, within the economic cycle, the opportunity of going to the country at the most propitious moment. So it does change, potentially at least, the dynamics of British politics to think that though most people are assuming an election won't be until 2024, it could come sooner. And just historically, pre the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, so when the discretion was with the Prime Minister, some parliaments did run their full term, but they were always parliaments where the government was weak, often lacked majority. So Gordon Brown, it ran the full term. John Major, after he won in 92, it then ran the full term to 97, with Prime Ministers almost sort of waiting for something to show up. They keep going because they fear they're going to lose, and they hold on. Governments with large majorities have almost always run four-year parliaments. So that was true, for instance, in the 80s. Helen mentioned with high unemployment, nonetheless, victories were achieved, but those were four-year parliaments. Blair's were four-year parliaments. So now we once again have a government with a big majority, a government that will be able to choose the timing of the election. Obviously, post-pandemic, the economic conditions, for all the reasons we've discussed, it's different. But there is now the opportunity to go quite a lot sooner and that, it feels to me that that is a, a change. Um, it does, apart from anything else, it focuses minds. Um, the time horizons might be shorter than we think. The end of 2024 is a long way away. Say June 2023, that's not that far away. So one of the points here is that it may not make so much difference because the way the Fixed Term Parliament Act works, the next election would be fixed for the early summer of 2024. It wouldn't be a five-year parliament. It would be a four-and-a-half-year oh, parliament. Right, so I got that wrong. Oops. <laughs> I told you we would tangle ourselves up in knots. Okay, so is that is that when it would be? So it's a four-and-a-half-year parliament? Yes, and the 
thought would be that if you repeal the Fixed Term Parliament Act, then absolutely the Prime Minister has the discretion about when to call an election. But I'd still have thought that the early summer, the late spring of 2024 is still the most likely spot, because to run a four-year parliament would be to have another winter election. And governments traditionally like to avoid them. It's dark, people are cold, people are miserable. There's a reason why prime ministers like Thatcher and Blair, who could control the electoral timetable, went in the late spring or early summer. And I think Boris Johnson will want to copy them. So then the question would be, do you have an election in May or June 2023, or an election in May or June 2024? And the potential nervousness with the early date is that it creates the perception that you're cutting and running. I mean, that's why Thatcher and Blair always waited till they were past the four-year mark because it looked responsible to let a parliament run 80% of its length and then have an election, rather than go over a year before you have to. So if Johnson is kind of trying to model himself on Thatcher and Blair, which I suspect he is, it would still, I think, be the late spring or early summer of 2024 that would be penciled in for an election. Although the next two or three years are very unpredictable and... um, Johnson may decide that if he's doing very well in the opinion polls in 2023, that he has to seize the opportunity. The other complication in all this, in terms of when he would want to call an election and the influence of the impact of circumstances on that is the is the Scottish question. Because depending on what happens in the in the Scottish parliamentary elections, if the SNP do win a majority, though obviously that's far from a given and make a, a request to hold a, another referendum on Scottish independence and it is turned down and then we're into a, a really sort of what is likely to be a contest over who has got the authority to make this decision about the referendum, presumably involving the Supreme Court at some point, then I think it will be quite difficult for Johnson to make decisions about the timing of the UK general election only in relation to what's going on the economic cycle, which is a little bit the way in which Thatcher and Blair dealt with things, particularly Thatcher. And it will have to be judged within the context of this really, really difficult set of questions about the future of the union. So that does bring us back to Scotland, which is where we always seem to end up at the moment. So one last question, and this relates to Labour. We've talked quite a lot about the challenges for the government and the challenges particularly that might follow the Holyrood elections. But the SNP are currently going through quite a significant internal difficulty. We'll have to see what its long-term fallout is, but the SNP's position looks, relatively speaking, weaker than it has done for a while. Whether that cashes out in electoral terms, we don't know yet. But Labour have recently chosen a new leader in Scotland, Anas Sawar. Labour's had a lot of leaders in Scotland. None of them have made an impact for a long time. Chris, do you have any idea whether this time might be different. I don't know much about Anas Sawar. I don't know if you do. He's described as a product of new Labour Labour rather than certainly Corbyn or even potentially Starmer Labour. Do you think he's got a chance of finally getting Labour back in the game in Scotland? No. Okay, that's a good answer. I think the problems Labour face in Scotland are structural And I don't think the Scottish party leadership has the ability to change the structures sufficiently to carve out an effective pathway forward that we've seen the leadership of Scottish Labour 
vary between different factions of the party. Most recently, uh, a Corbynite leader. A lot of the pro-Corbyn people said that it was only when the Labour leadership in Scotland could harness the enthusiasm that Corbyn had in England, that was the only way that Scotland could, could be won back for Labour. They did have a Corbynite leader. They went nowhere. And I think that's because the problems that Scottish Labour face go way beyond the question of whichever individual it is who happens to be leading the party. But while the party has an unequivocal commitment to the union, it doesn't really get a hearing from the very large number of Scottish voters, especially young Scottish voters, who otherwise would be the natural constituency for Labour, who are supportive of independence. The way you resolve that conundrum is by creating the conditions in which Scottish Labour could be agnostic on the question of independence and say that's going to be settled by referendum, that's a separate question, you know, let's let's not worry about that. But that would be politically extraordinarily difficult. It would blow up the Labour Party in Scotland. It would create factional infighting on a scale that we haven't yet seen. And it would also create a headache for the UK Labour leadership about what on earth is going on when its party, its branch, its sister party, however we want to characterise the relationship, is no longer actively proselytising on behalf of the union. So I think the the problem is structural. I don't think there's a straightforward way out of it. And so I expect to see Scottish Labour's problems continuing. Of course, if the current shenanigans inside the SNP, if the current crisis continues and is part of a story of dampening enthusiasm for independence, there have been signs of that in the polls, but it's too early to say whether that's going to be a sustained shift in public opinion. And also in the context of multi-party politics, you know, it's certainly possible that Labour can win a larger vote share than they're winning at the moment or win more seats to Holyrood or be more competitive in seats for the general election. But that would be if they're lucky, if things go their way. I don't think there's a particular strategy they can follow that will make it more likely that they'll do better in future. And I haven't seen anything coming from Sawa that suggests that he thinks that either. So who do you think wins if, if the SNP loses? You've got to think about this in terms of who are the the voters who have basically gone over or had gone over to the SNP in a pro-independence position over the course of the the last year, because essentially it's since the the aftermath of the general election and the pandemic that both support for the SNP and support for independence had increased, at least until the polling of the last few weeks and it looks like the increase was coming from people who had voted no in the Scottish referendum in 2014 and had voted remain in the Brexit referendum in 2016 and hadn't voted for the SNP in the general election in December 2019. So I think it's pretty difficult to imagine that those voters are voters who are going to the Conservative Party, particularly so long as Boris Johnson is the leader of it, if they are now reverted back from an independence position and and now are unsympathetic to the SNP and maybe dismayed by some of the SNP's positions. I think that Labour's got to have a chance of winning some of those voters, but it conceivably brings the Liberal Democrats back into play in um, Scotland, though I think the, the, the Liberal Democrat leadership makes that a bit difficult. I think in some sense, part of the question about whether Labour can benefit will depend on the position that Starmer 
works himself too on what he thinks the constitutional arrangements for the the union um, should be and whether he's really willing to entertain the kind of ideas that Gordon Brown's been articulating about a more federal United Kingdom now. I think that that's pretty tricky both in the in the substance of it and the politics of it, but it, it's not difficult to see, or the long-term politics of it anyway, it, it's not difficult to see how it's a superficially attractive position and that it might be able to to at least make Labour competitive in trying to get some of those votes. And you've said in the past that for the Conservatives, the Lib Dems have to play a role in British politics, that ideally for the Conservatives, they don't want the Lib Dems too strong, taking picking up Conservative votes, but they do want them to be competitive with Labour and they want at least the possibility of switching among certain parts of the electorate between support for Labour and support for the Lib Dems, which had happened over quite an extended period, but had died away. And one of the features of the Corbyn period and the post-coalition period is that it died away. So if Scotland signals the start of a Lib Dem revival, because of all the parties at the moment, the Lib Dems are the ones who are finding it hardest to get any hearing at all. It's very, very hard to remember anything that a Liberal Democrat has said or done that has got any coverage, including the leader who most people can't name. But if Scotland is where it begins and the Lib Dems are at least back in the game there, that could have a knock-on effect. I mean, the Conservative Party does want a slightly but not too much more visible Liberal Democratic presence in British politics. So there is at least potentially a benefit there. In principle, yes. But I think that we also, you know, if you look at like what happened in the end in the general election, obviously in 2019, is the the Conservatives still did very well without the Liberal Democrats doing very well. So I think how this plays out in practice actually depends on you know, quite a micro-level understanding of what's going on in a lot of different constituencies. And the fact that you can see in principle scenario of the kind that I was suggesting where the Liberal Democrats might be the beneficiary of the voters who look like they may desert the the SNP doesn't mean in practice that that is how it would work out because obviously as you say that the Liberal Democrats are simply absent um, at the moment and that looks as true in Scotland as it does in the rest of the and uh, the rest of Britain. Chris one last question this is a very old-fashioned question but Johnson the other thing he will do over the next few months is reshuffle his cabinet almost certainly. The Labour Party the shadow cabinet have struggled. Annalisa Dodds has struggled, struggled to get a hearing. But when she does get a hearing, she struggled to get good coverage, essentially. And a lot of this, maybe all of it, is not her fault. But the the Labour shadow cabinet has not really cut through, to use that awful cliche. So when Johnson reshuffles, does the Labour Party need to look harder for people alongside Keir Starmer, who for whatever reason, whether it's presentational, whether it's to do with charisma, whether it's to do with the willingness to take some risks, have a better chance of actually being noticed? I don't think so. I think the reasons why the shadow cabinet hasn't cut through are largely to do with the extraordinary circumstances that we've been living through over the last year. I can't see how what they could have done or said that would have made more of an impression than they haven't made. So then the question is, if you were Keir Starmer, would you want to remodel your front bench team to go in some direction or other? And I can kind of see why he doesn't want to do that, that there are politicians like Yvette Cooper or Hilary Benn still on the back benches who one could imagine circumstances in which they'd be invited to go back to the front bench. 
but they'd want very senior positions and they'd give off a strong signal that Starmer was tacking back to the right of the party, trying to return to a sort of new Labour comfort zone. Uh, he doesn't want to give off those vibes. And in any case, some of these senior Labour politicians are doing rather well for themselves as select committee chairs. Equally, Starmer doesn't much want to tack to the left to give good jobs to Jeremy Corbyn supporters, partly because it's not obvious there are big beasts in waiting on that side of the party, the really substantial politicians, people like John McDonnell or Diane Abbott, uh, have retired from the front bench. And insofar as Starmer has ruled other people out, it's because of things they've said about the Labour Party and the anti-Semitism issue. And Starmer has been very clear that if you didn't agree to certain principles, you wouldn't be on his team. And some people on the left of the party have been the victim of that. And at a time where Starmer is still trying to keep Jeremy Corbyn out of the Parliamentary Labour Party, we're not going to see a softening of that line. So you can easily make the case that it's not a great shadow cabinet, that people who are optimistic that the new leader had a lot more of the uh, party to draw on in putting together his shadow cabinet. There was a kind of reunification of the parliamentary party behind the leader. Some people were optimistic that that would make a big difference to Labour's fortunes. That hasn't really happened. But I think part of the broader issue is that if you look across the parliamentary Labour Party, it's not an especially talented group of politicians, that there are very few politicians who have that clout, have that sense of being substantial weighty figures with um, who stand for something and have good judgment and so on. So it's not as if Starmer is spoiled for choice in terms of who he can put in his shadow cabinet. I think he is reasonably comfortable with the people he does have around him. He will be very relieved that the party is relatively united. There's a vociferous critical left wing, but it doesn't have a great deal of traction with the parliamentary party, with the party machine around the National Executive Committee, or crucially, with the electorate. So I think Starmer will be happy to carry on and hope that at some point in the not-too-distant future, as the furlough comes to an end, as unemployment rises, as people face the difficult questions of how to how to pay for the costs of the pandemic, the Labour Party polling position will be able to arrive. Next week in our regular slot on Talking Politics, we're going to be discussing the politics of climate change. And we've just tweeted the link at tppodcast underscore the Helen's latest article on this subject. It's definitely worth reading. On History of Ideas this week, it's Rosa Luxemburg. And coming up, we've got Carl Schmidt, Joseph Schumpeter and Simone de Beauvoir. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. So there is at least potentially a benefit there. Is that now a question? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming... And his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.